Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Monday, February, February 20th. That's right. 2023. Yes, President's Day. Which. Uh, so called President's Day. Yeah, well, there's a whole confusion about that, whether it's President's Day or George Washington's birthday or whatever. And well, there's no confusion. Well, it's usually not any anybody's birthday, it, it, but, but it's when it's celebrated. Yeah, I know. It's it, the federal holiday. That's a simplistic. Uh, I just read a long article in the Times bemoaning some confusion on a state by state basis, but I'm going to spare you that. Okay, okay. it's deeper but, than that. But, but here, we here, we knew people who took the holiday very seriously. Yeah. Well, look. Here's the deal. February 22nd, George Washington's birthday. When we were growing up. That was celebrated as a holiday, George Washington's birthday, February 22nd. That's important for several reasons, not the least of which is this. My parents were married on February 22nd, 1948, 75 years ago. This would have been their 75th anniversary had they, you know, if they were still alive. And they Uh, chose that day. And they chose February 22nd because they said our anniversary will always be a holiday. And it's just there is no greater lesson in life than that (laughs) even when you try to marry marry on a holiday, you can't even get that right because in 1971 they said, no, 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 what we really need is three day weekends. No such thing as February 22nd. It's the, you know, it's the second or third weekend, third or Monday in February. So there we go. Nothing is forever. That's what we learned from this. But happy 75th. Yes, to my to parents, parents. Memory of my parents, yes. So, um, we went to the movies. We saw some, did something we never did in the movies before, which is we went to a series of animated shorts, the animated shorts nominated for an Oscar this year. Right. Uh, five short films. Um, and, At uh, the instigation of others. Others, yes. Yeah, so somebody else's idea. To do it. Yeah. Somebody said we're going. Yeah. And uh, we said, okay, we'll, we'll come. go. And it was interesting. It was first of all, it was very well attended. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I was I was surprised. Good news. Uh, and uh, what did you think generally? I had fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it I too. Shorts are a great way to go. Yeah, because... You, small bites. Small bites. And if it's good, that's great. If it's not good, it's just... Yeah, and they weren't you know, all... It's not three hours. They were all good. The Times... Interestingly, the Times reviewed them uh, the same day that we saw them. And it was interesting reading the reviews before and afterward. Uh, and just quickly running through them, uh, one of them that I think the Times liked best was The Flying Sailor, which is a story about a sailor walking the docks uh, in 1917, during at the moment of the so-called Halifax catastrophe, when a speeding vessel collided with a cargo ship filled with TNT, producing the largest human-made explosion at that time. And as a result, that sailor flew, uh, depending on who you ask, a mile or a mile and a half, and then landed and survived, which, uh, between you and me, is impossible. I mean, anyway, it's about... But it's, it's an animated, animated it's an animated short. And animating it has that, no words. it was very creative. Uh, it was very thin, though. It was just uh, you watch the guy go flying. Uh, okay, but uh, <laughs> it was good. Yes, you, you didn't like it. I thought it was good, but it, but okay. it wasn't the best. The best I thought was was the one that was called Ice Merchants, uh, which, as they say, seizes onto gravity as a metaphor for the fragility of existence. About really a man and his son uh, living uh, in a uh, cabin that is harnessed to a frozen mountainside. 
and uh, because of global warming or whatever, uh, frozen becomes less frozen and their existence becomes precarious. Uh, also, no dialogue. I thought very affecting. Wonderful animation, right? Right. Agreed? Right. The best? Yeah. The best. Uh, then there was um, an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. Uh, stop motion cubicle worker um, who is told by a stop motion ostrich that everything is fake. And in fact, it kind of is if you're a uh, stop motion cubicle worker. Uh, so really quirky, but fun, right? And then there was uh, My Year of Dicks. That's right. I said it, My Year of Dicks, about a teenager growing up and having her first encounter. Uh, her with a, a first. Thank you, Tamsin. Thank you for using that word. I was trying to avoid that. With a boy. And uh, that was animated. And I thought it would be good if, if you're like 15 years old. So it's a good thing to watch. And uh, not for me, though. And then, uh, then the one which um, just last night or so won the BAFTA for Best uh, UK Animated Short of the Year, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse, which is based on a graphic novel of the same name, which apparently was tremendously popular and a bestseller. Uh, and those four characters, if we can call them that, uh, sort of dealing with certain travails uh, in a very quiet, kind of elegantly uh, drawn and expressed um, uh, adventure uh, filled with that sort of nice looking and filled with platitudes, I think is a fair way to put it. And narrated by... Uh, who's it narrated by? Stars. Yeah, yeah. well, not narrated, voiced by. Gabri- voiced by. Gabriel voiced Byrne by. and Idris Elba and Tom Holland and so on. Um, yeah, I didn't think it was great. The Times actually also didn't think it was great. As a matter of fact, they were very harsh. But it won the BAFTA last night, and uh, it's the odds-on favorite to win the Oscar. So we'll see. People will be familiar with it because it was a very popular right. graphic novel. It's right. quite gentle and yeah, it's, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's 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 therapy speak. I mean, it's 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 tough to. But take. the greatest thing about all the animation yeah. was the animation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. we're we're summarizing. It was interesting to look at the story, right? And uh, the, you know, the stories. You know, the, the, there's a. I guess the overriding theme was poignance, actually. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, yeah. But uh, it wasn't even about the story so much as the visual experience. Well, because that's your point about the 15 minutes or the 10 minutes, whatever they, they took. I mean, even if you didn't find the story that affecting, even if they didn't carry you away in terms of a narrative, just, you know, looking at the visuals uh, and appreciating that uh, for 10 or 15 minutes was certainly enough to get you through. Right. 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 And that that was the magic right. of it. Yeah. So it's certainly worth going to. But you, you know, you forget how to go to look for animation if you you're mean? older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. well most animation uh, is for you kids. Know, and uh, it can be a fabulous experience. It's not just a matter of... Yeah, well, some of these... It was very creative animation in most cases, except for the last one. Uh, very creative animation. Um, not lifelike, necessarily. But still extremely affecting. All right, so here's something, and I went back and forth, but I think I can do this. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time in it. I don't want to get too scientific, and I'm no expert on climate change. But this is the best article I've ever read in terms of explaining climate change, and it's about something called geoengineering, right? And uh, the focus is on a man named Nathan Mirvold, who, as they describe him, is a polymath, I can't even describe all the degree he has. Grease he has. What's his name again? Nathan Mirvold. 
I'll give you the spelling later, honey. And okay. he, and he is, you know, clearly a genius. There's, that seems to be difficult to question and quite successful in many ways, including for 12 years with Microsoft as their chief of engineering. But he's now working on trying to spearhead efforts with respect to climate change. And um, let me just give you the the one-minute explanation of the climate change problem, which I think is reasonably fair. Okay, As he states it? No, as, as it's described in the article, and I've read it otherwise. Um, and, and I'm sure there are variations on this theme. But the principal problem being uh, greenhouse uh, effect, uh, in which uh, greenhouse gases are trapped close to the Earth's surface and make it warmer. And you're familiar with the greenhouse effect, the idea that the sun's rays come through a greenhouse, let's say, and they can't bounce back up and get out, so the warmth stays uh, close to the surface. Well, what what prevents the greenhouse gases from escaping into the atmosphere away from the Earth is uh, carbon dioxide. Unlike other gases, carbon dioxide acts as a shield that prevents 50% of the warmth from escaping. And therefore, you get this pronounced sea, uh, greenhouse effect. So there are two ways uh, one could go about solving the problem. One is to reduce um, the amount of carbon dioxide in the air so you won't have this screening effect. And right. the other is reduce the warmth coming from the sun. Okay? That's it. Uh, and uh, as he points out, all the focus has been, or large focus has been, on efforts to reduce uh, carbon dioxide. And that goes into the switch to electric cars or whatever uh, efforts in that connection. And he has concluded based on various... He, who is he? Mirbolt. Okay. He has concluded based on various studies, and he's quoting others, that uh, that's an effort that's that, that's destined to fail. There, there, there's, that's just not going to happen. That, that, that the uh, toothpaste is out of tube that, on that. Uh, you didn't notice any real reduction in the greenhouse effect during uh, the pandemic when there was a lot less uh, car travel and the like. Uh, you just can't solve the problem that way. And, he, and the discussion in the article is about there are political reasons why people pursue that, notwithstanding that, that in Mirabold's view and the view of others, that that's a pointless effort. Uh, so he's working on geoengineering efforts, uh, which go in two, two ways. One is to actually produce something in the way of low-flying clouds um, in a way that would prevent a certain amount of heat coming from the sun to the earth. In other words, rather than be, you know reducing the CO2 emissions to a great degree, you just reduce the heat that comes to the earth to begin with. Um, and the other is a way to capture and store carbon, di uh, carbon dioxide, so-called greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. Methane, for example. But uh, and it actually, the second is actually harder to do because it's hard to know how to store it. And, and then you get – both of these are complicated efforts. And I don't know. They're, they're you beginning. store it and maybe use it? Or no. You what? store it and, and – and it, Just it's, lock it away? Yeah. You store it or dissolve it and, and, and turn it into something else or something. Okay. But it, it, they haven't figured out how to do it. Okay. These are both long-range projects. But it's, it's quite interesting to say – he says this is – in this man's view, this is the only hope. The, the idea of saying let's not drive your car, that's not going to do it. Okay. Uh, uh, so anyway, I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, uh, I'll stop there. You know, you can you can ask me later for more details. I'm sure you'll you'll want them, right? Okay, so I'm sure you're not interested in this story. Oh, it's another story about whether a painting is a real painting. 
Well, <laughs> well, don't don't start. That's There's a negative approach. Week. That's a negative. There is one every week. Yeah, but you definitely you don't. This do, one is a little bit different because okay? you don't do most of them. You, you know, you say this one, but well, we only talk about one out of every well, five. This one, well, this this one is, is it or not a Raphael? Yes. Okay, so that's big time. Well, Raphael's that, that, big that's time. That's one of the Ninja Turtles. I'm one of the. Right? That's how I know him. Yeah. Raphael, Ninja yeah. Turtles. So there you know he's big. Yeah. Um, and you know, there the headline in the. Wall Street Journal says, you know, Raphael left behind fewer than 200 works. Um, the most recent ones to be auctioned sold for 48 million. 48 million. So is this a real Raphael? It could be worth a lot of money. Right. So the story is this. Anthony <coughs> Ayers yeah. was vacationing in the English countryside in 1997. Yeah. He's just a normal guy. He's like an artist. A cabinet maker, and allegedly in a dusty antique shop yeah. in the back of an armoire, yeah. he finds this painting, and uh, for some reason he thinks it might be something. And, okay, and what happens? I think we're not hearing the whole story here because he buys it. He gets some friends together. They buy it for thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's that's not nothing. It's not nothing. I mean, it's not like, you know, it was a painting in the back of the dusty antique shop and somebody won 25 bucks for it. Right. I think there's more to the story. Okay. Right. So anyway, he gets to get in 19, no, not even 97, 95, 1995, you know, he um, buys this. Right. Or he's vacationing there and he finds it and he buys it. Um, so he's been working. Here's the problem. Yeah. They've been working on trying to get it uh, authenticated, authenticated right. since then. You know, the first thing they do is, uh, so this was a long time it's ago. It's over 20 years. Right? Right. Right. But the first thing they, that they could easily do was uh, analyze the wood that yeah. it's painted on and the, the pigments used. Right. And they verify that, uh, that it will date the, this painting to the 1500s. Right. So he's... Delighted, right. he's excited. Right. You know, could this be a um, you know another? I don't know Leonardo da Vinci. You know, right. and he takes it to uh, someone who says, "No, no, 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 no. It's you know, if it's anything, it's a Raphael." Right. All right. So, you know, several um, experts do look at it and say, "Yeah, it seems like it could be." From somebody, from Raphael or somebody close to Raphael. Right. Of course, that's not really good enough yet. And uh, they continue to um, work on this, have it analyzed by experts. And in order to finance that, they acquire more and more investors in, you know, the project. They right. have like a consortium. They now have 40 people who have invested in authenticating this oh, wow. painting, hoping that it will pay off. And they probably spent a okay. lot of money. $500,000. Well, that's that's worth it if it's $48 million. Right. Yeah. Absolutely worth it. But here's the problem. Now, they're, they, they've actually used some AI to analyze this. There's a firm called uh, Art Recognition yeah. who uh, has algorithms that, uh, you know, on the basis of the brush strokes, et cetera, say there's a 97% certain, certainty 
that uh, the faces and the faces of Mary and Jesus were done by Raphael. Oh, that's that's all you need. That's it. Well, one would think. Yeah. And this this um, program or whatever generally get you know find generally it's like less than ten percent of the paintings people bring to them are yeah. anything. Right. You know, certainly nothing. That you know, with this kind, with this level of um, what do you say? Not accuracy, but uh, precision. Yeah, yeah. Um, or estimation, or, or or something like that. So there is that, but people are still not convinced. In fact, when they tried to in 1999 sell it, okay, they they wanted to sell it. A uh, Christie's had a German firm, a German expert actually, um, look at the uh, painting. And he ascertained that he really felt it was not done by uh, Raphael. Somebody near Raphael, possibly Antonio Cariolo. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which was bad news. And so, and Christie said they would only put it up for sale as um, attributed to Cariolo. So that's a problem because at that time. Yeah. His paintings were only selling for like a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, all right. Well, so these people, they're still stuck. They're still getting research done. Yeah. They said, uh, you know, one guy um, was so excited about it. He when he first in, he first invested in it, he named his son Raphael uh, well, after the painter. His well, son I, how, how is get, now seventeen years how old. How do you get it? How do you get certainty for this? So this just goes on forever. I don't know. It could go. He, they said they wish they could just find a tag on the back that said "Made in China" and just yeah. you know kind of give up. Um, but they said if we were, if it was owned by a museum, people would be delighted to authenticate it, or, or it wouldn't be a big deal. Right. The museum's not going to sell it. Right. But once they know you want to sell it, you know uh, experts are kind of uh, well, you know they don't want. I have to... the solution. You you give it to a museum and you take the tax write off and the museum authenticates it and everybody uh, does well. Oh, you uh, take a tax write off right. instead of having cash. Right. Well, what if what if everybody's not you know a well healed? Well, that's what you got to work out. Okay. So anyway, so that's the deal. But here's the sad end of the story: yeah. is um, last year the guy who found it passed away. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, uh, he had been diagnosed with early Alzheimer's, mm. and he was only sixty four. Well, so all right. He will. He won't benefit from this. He will not benefit. His wife would love to be able to. Move she on. said, "Visit his gravesite and let him know he was right." Yeah, his wife would also like forty-eight million dollars. So you know, it all lines. So um, here's a, one million yes. out of the forty shares. Yeah. Right? Well, right. they have thirty percent. Yeah, I'm just gonna say they have more than one. They have, they they have, have more than, than one percent. You know, yeah. uh, equal share. Uh, so here's an article called "Love Is Easy: Rom Coms Are Arduous." So there's a podcast which is uh, called "Let's Make a Rom Com." Arduous. Uh, yeah, it's tough to write it. That's my point. It's hard to write a rom-com. So these these folks, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation does this podcast. Last year it was Let's Make a Sci-Fi, in which uh, they had people who uh, weekly would discuss and ultimately write uh, a science fiction movie. Uh, and this year it's Let's Make a Rom-Com. And what they found out, and, and, and uh, what they're finding out, is that it's much tougher to write a rom-com, romantic comedy, than it is to write a science so fiction this movie. this is a series? Yeah, a podcast. A podcast series? Yeah, and eight episodes. And they're working on? On the script. Okay. 
So uh, they seem surprised that it's much tougher to write a romantic comedy uh, than a science fiction movie. Well, how could that be? Isn't there just a formula? Yeah. So, uh, right. Couldn't any chatbot do it? No. Turns out, no. It turns out, uh, no, because, uh, well, I don't know. The, the person writing the article doesn't know anything about romantic comedies. Honestly, they do inform the reader that uh, that's a film species that had its origins in the screwball comedies of the 30s, and the form reached its, its apogee, its height, its greatest moments. Spencer it, Tracy? In, no, no, according to this article, in the hands of Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers in the 90s, on the theory, basically, that nothing mattered until the 90s. Uh, yeah, so that's just wrong. Uh, so th- th- no help from the writer of the article uh, uh, I guess we can listen to the podcast what they had a problem was so they came up with the idea that rom-coms are out of fashion that they used to be popular but they're uncool and and they're right and they're wrong and, and here's where they're right or they're wrong in terms of popularity okay, okay? and this this the article's on to it's like Hallmark channel yeah I, I, I understand yeah, but, right. but, but you put your finger on it Apparently, romantic comedy movies do not succeed, but romantic comedy streaming succeeds. Oh, okay. How's that distinction? All right. So, and both in a big way. Like, there's no romantic comedies in the top 50 box office in terms of going to the movies, but they are the biggest things on Netflix and streaming and the like, like the Hallmark movies you're talking about. No, but I should correct myself because I don't think Hallmark movies are not really rom-coms. Yes, they are. Are they? Because yeah. they're not that funny. No, 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 no. Well, that, but that, but, the, you know, it's not but, like, but they do try to be funny. And they do. And, and when, when people mostly say rom-com, it doesn't mean laugh a minute like Mel Brooks. It means that it's not, no, it, it's it, not yeah, suspense. It's not drama. It's, it's, it's whatever. Oh, okay. comedy as in like musical comedy. Well, like, comedy is like, as in not drama. Tragedy yeah. tomorrow, comedy today. There you go. Yeah, yeah. To, to quote Stephen yeah. Sondheim. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, um, look, Hallmark movie, you got your finger on it. Don't, don't, Back off that. That that's rom com, okay? Okay. And uh, so what they eventually determine the reason it's so tough. They say, look, if you're writing science fiction, just making things up like crazy, all right. Uh, And but if you're writing a a romantic comedy, you're writing about real people in real situations with real things at stake. It's much harder to do. And the other thing that's hard is they say we're trying to avoid. You know, conventions of romantic comedy such that people say, oh, that's just the same as blank, that's the same as blank. And that's tough because it's hard to be original. So, uh, oh, Hallmark thrives on the conventions. I understand. I think these people are not the right people to write a romantic comedy. They want to be original. We could listen to it, but I I only mention it because uh, Granger and Zeke and I are stumbling toward writing a romantic comedy. And we'll see if we make much progress. I'll instruct those guys to take a look at the podcast or at least to write some additional stuff based on the first draft I've done of the first few scenes and get them going. Maybe this will kick them in the, in, into action. But here's the thing. There's nothing original about romance or comedy. I know, but it's it's the it's, way it's but it's, it's like everything else. There is. But it's the way it's done. It's always the way it's done, Tams. There's nothing original. Every story I can tell you know West Side Story is based on be, Romeo and Juliet. It doesn't need to be it's the original. way it's done. It, it, it doesn't have to be no it doesn't, forcing themselves into a box they don't need to be in. No, but the, but things have to be authentic and true. They have to ring true. The characters have to seem real to you some extent. You don't want it to ring true at all. No, you, you want just, to ring a little you just bit want true. To like it. Yes. 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 Okay. Well, again, you're on to it. Because, <laughs> you know what they say at the end of the article? It's a, you should have read this article, not me. I did. Obviously, I didn't need to. <laughs> yes, you did. I think that's what we're learning. That's here. not the test. Here's what they say at the end. 
is uh, sometimes what's the point of a random comedy quote? Sometimes we just want to watch something that makes us feel good. Right. That's that's why you know they always have the adorable baked goods. You know the good outfits. The you know the the uh, charming county fairs, etc. I mean, it just. It's not original. It's not particularly right. real. Well, when Granger and I and Zeke write it, it's going okay. to be a little bit different. So don't stress yourselves on that. I mean, okay. you can listen to the podcast if you want. But, Thank you. Um, okay, so, you know, if you didn't get enough with the first story, I have another story about authentication. Yeah, great. What? Authentication. Go ahead. No, authentication. Authentication. Okay. Um, and this one is about uh, a uh, portrait of George Washington oh, apt, by Charles Wilson Peel. It <clears throat> is a um, painting of George Washington after the 1777 Battle of Princeton. Okay. Okay. Incredibly successful painting. Uh, right. All right. I think I know the Peel painting. paints that yeah. and then he does a zillion copies. Everybody wants one. Right. They got to have it. Right. So he, he's painting copies? Yes. Oh, okay. In fact, Princeton um, University, yeah. our alma mater, has one of the copies commissioned yeah. by G-Dub himself. Really? To be hung in so the university. So what's the controversy then? Okay. What's the problem? Well, this is a copy. Well, this is one that was in, that is in... That's housed in the uh, baronial residence of the United States Senator to France. Ambassador to France. Oh, Ambassador to France, right. yes. Okay. And um, the, uh, I guess the embassy decided that uh, it needed some conservation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they called in a conservator. Right. I mean, somebody with, you know. Real credentials. Right. Lauren Hall. Right. Okay. I can see where this uh, is going. The, yeah. uh, Office of Cultural Heritage right. of the State Department. Right. Okay. And um, she looks at it and she says, well, it's, it's, he's got a terrible face. Right. You know, it's kind of blobby. Is this even real? You know, what the heck is it? And Okay. And uh, the provenance is uh, murky, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so actually, so first they do some research yeah. to figure out, is it worth, is it worth saving? It's, it's kind of messed up. It's got actual like holes that have been plugged up right. in uh, parts of it. I think especially in, in the face area. And what it turns out yeah. happily yeah. is that it's the real deal. Okay. So, um, one of the, uh, people besieging, uh, Mr. Peel for a um, copy of this painting was Henry Lawrence, a founding father, wealthy merchant, and slave trader from South Carolina. Okay, he um, he ordered this painting, and it was with him on a ship, the Mercury, on the way to the Netherlands to request money to finance um, the uh, to negotiate. A loan, I think it was for, you know, a loan for the U.S. Mm-hmm. from Netherlands. Yeah, okay. okay? Um, meanwhile, en route, this is in 1780, 
en route, they are attacked by the British. Poor Mr. Lawrence ends up as a prisoner of war. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the, um, you know. Uh, what happens to the painting, Thompson? The captain yeah. of the British ship yeah. gets the painting. Okay. Okay. So it stays there. It stays in his family. Yeah. For hundreds of years. Oh, that's where it comes from. Okay. But here's an interesting thing. In 1918, things yeah. get a little bit confusing because he has a copy. Somebody, not he, but somebody in the family has a copy of that yeah. made. And they hang it in the um, residence of the prime minister at number 10 down, Downing Street. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that, that just makes things... A little confusing. Not that confusing. For the provenance. All right. So we is got the painting. Is this the real painting? Right. Is, you know, is this the real painting from this family? Yeah. Or is it the copy of that real painting? You know, it, but anyway, they ascertain it's the real thing. Yeah. And so now they're going to uh, clean it up and okay. make it good. And, and it, it, it's possible. It's not unusual when things are, you know, um, taken as prizes in battle. Yeah, especially if it's uh, paintings of people on the other side and famous people on the other side, for things to get destroyed. Oh, so it's possible that's a thing? that yeah. you know somebody was poking holes in it, and so that's how it got the it makes bad it more valuable overpainting yes, job. Right. All right, so that now it needs to be but this is not kind worth of take off the bad stuff and not forty eight million dollars though, not that kind of thing. Not that kind of value. Oh, no. It's, it still has tremendous value. Really? Yeah. People love that painting. Okay. It doesn't have $48 million value, but... Um, All right. You know, somewhere, somewhere in the article, it says, uh, you know... Um, okay. Right. An, uh, another one of the few... Cl- one copy has sold for 1.2 right. in 2000. Two, in 2006, one of the copies sold for $21 million. Oh, my God. Wow. All right. So... You know, it's up there, baby. All it's right. Washington. Okay. All right. And, you know, and it's a funny painting because, I mean, he looks, he's kind of, he's got the weak chin. He's got the big tummy. Right. Yeah. You well, know? we know what He doesn't looks. look like the fake Washington we all. Well, no, no. I, I think I, I've seen a lot of Washington pictures that look that way. So It's kind of narrow shouldered. Yeah. But it, it is, it does have Nassau Hall in the background. All right. Well, that counts for something. It. Nassau Hall being Princeton. Just right. so we're clear. Um, so there was an article about coaching basketball. I coach basketball at the high school level. So I was kind of interested. And here's the interesting thing. It's an article uh, in the Times uh, about women's basketball. And, you know, I've coached women's basketball. And coaching women's basketball and coaching men's have a lot of similarity. So there, it's basically an interview with a college coach and uh, a WNBA professional coach. And... A lot of it kind of rings true with me, uh, and in some ways, women coaches uh, are probably, uh, you know, more sensitive to the kind of things that you'd be sensitive to, that I would be sensitive to as, as a coach of a, of a JV team, uh, but which, which is a positive statement in my regard. I mean, I, I, I look at things the way they look at things to some degree. So, you know, they talk about the importance of communication. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to come in with systems and a coach impressing them with their basketball prowess, but the players have to feel good and, and believe in what you're doing and feel they want to play for you, and that's the most important. I, I, I agree with all that. 
And uh, I think maybe a woman's coach is more apt to say something like that than a men's coach. But uh, I think that's true really uh, on all levels. Um, and, it, and it works for you. Well, it works for me. I'm not talking about me so much. I'm talking about the article, but yes. Well, but, but that's one of the things. You read this article and they say this. Uh, these are... Yeah, it resonates with me. It yeah, resonates it with resonates, me. It resonates. Yeah, you know. because I feel I do that and I feel that I'm... It's one thing if you read from... this article and you say, yeah, that's okay well, for girls. You're, no, 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 no. You're saying... This is a very mature take on it. And they also, they talk about, uh, you know, you have to see things clearly. Uh, you know, one, both coaches talk about experiences. They were going crazy. They were yelling at the refs all the time. And they asked somebody who was sort of a consultant on the team, What's, what do you think the problem is? Uh, and they said, it's not the refs. Your team's not that good. I mean, you, you, you're trying... <laughs> And uh, you have to adjust your experience. That you know, it, it can't be for that group. It can't be about winning all the time. But are we seeing growth in the players? You have to make that adjustment depending on what you how you assess your team, which I also think is is a good insight. Um, and also, you know, aligned with that, the notion of what are you really trying to accomplish? Uh, the goal is to constantly be able to provide good, positive, effective leadership for the people that you want to see be successful, particularly a scholastic college or a high school team. You know, what do you want them to take from the experience? How is it going to help them down the road? They're not going to make a living doing this. Most of them are not. The, the only down thing in the article, and this, I, I see this on almost every article about women's basketball, certainly in the Times, is, you know, what's the biggest challenge in the game? What, and women's game is a huge problem. What is the problem? The problem is that people aren't willing to spend $80 a ticket to see it. So it's not like the men's game. It's not like there's not the money. And my attitude at this point is, why is that a problem? I mean, the women's game is what the women's game is. People want to see it, go see it. But there's a lot of good being done. A lot of people get a lot of, out of playing basketball. The people who enjoy it enjoy it a great deal. The people who, are, who play it at all levels do develop by virtue of playing in this team game. Uh, where is it written that it has to be a mega million sport so that a certain group at the end is making a zillion dollars. I don't see that as a failure. Why why worry about that? Well, because they're just saying that it, uh, people uh, are voting with their feet. That so it they is are. not so, as interesting fine. or fun to watch. It, and, and maybe it as, isn't. As men's, just because it's women. Maybe it isn't. I don't know if it is or it isn't. But to me, that doesn't really undermine. You don't care if it's anybody watches. No. I don't, it's certainly not that my games. I don't care. I mean, people do watch it. But not 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 right. any, any large numbers. But that's not what the but game's that, about. That's not what you're looking for. No. to tell you whether it's worth no, doing. And I don't know why these so many women's coaches because they do come back this all the time. It's a constant. Gee, what's wrong with the women's game? There's nothing wrong with the women's game. It's just not the kind of thing that people want to see in the same numbers they want to see in the men's game. That's not a harsh, terrible result. It's very few sports. There's so many sports out there, and think of the very small minority that people spend all this money on to see very a small sliver of the kind of sports people do. Why do you consider yourself a failure if people don't want to watch you do it? I mean, I don't understand that. So anyway, that's my own pet peeve. Yeah. But uh, all right, so we, had, we have two obituaries. Go ahead. Right. Mine is uh, for David Benner. Yeah. The Solberry Moss Man. Yeah, so it's news to me. Um, no, I'm... I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Well, he passed away. Obviously. He passed away. Yeah. Um, and he was uh, um, an just an interesting guy. He was a um, you know uh, 
professor of horticulture, music composer, birder, hiker, fisherman. He did a lot to um, help uh, instigate, you know, various kinds of preservation in Sol in the Solberry area, um, Bucks County area. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a um, he actually succeeded in uh, instigating the rerouting when they were um, building. Uh, Route 611. Mm-hmm. You've heard of 611. It intersects with 202. They uh, pushed it aside to to save a forest area mm-hmm. that is now a park called Castle Park okay. or Central Park mm-hmm. in Doylestown. So th- there's all of that. But the reason I know of him is he had... Um, his property was on a shady hillside Yeah. Okay. in uh, Solberry that was not good for growing grass. Right. Okay. So he gave up on the grass, tore out any grass that was growing, and he made a point of growing moss. Right. And so his whole lawn mm-hmm. uh, was moss. Do you know where this is? I, yes, I've been there. He At a certain point, he started giving tours. Yeah. And it was like $10 a, um, to come in and walk around in the spring when it would be at its height of all these natural, right. fabulous, uh, blooming uh, spring flowers. And he, he would donate the money to various charities, etc. So, and, and it was just amazing. It was like being in a magic forest. Uh-huh. But of course it was, you know, uh, cultivated by him, curated by him. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you remember that a few years ago, the local historic society uh, asked us to be part of their garden tour. Right. And we don't have a fancy garden. Right. Um, but it's just a beautiful, it's kind of a, nature does all the work. It right. just happens to be a beautiful, natural spot. Right. And uh, so, and we think it's beautiful. And so, yeah, um, the uh, we were part of uh this whole group of gardens mm-hmm. some quite magnificent and right. and, and the tour uh, the other place on the tour yeah. yeah and uh and people came here and they were suitably awestruck by the beauty mm-hmm. and i was sitting down by the pool watching people walk through the yard and david benner Walked across the yard. Oh, really? And, and, you and knew I said, you oh, my God. And I just shouted out. I said, Benner is in the house. Yeah. And he, he just died. He's 93. He was about, I don't know, he was about uh, Did he laugh? Did he laugh when and, you yelled that? Um, his wife laughed, yeah. you know. And she, she, uh, and she said something like, don't get him started, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he sat down. And so it was such a, a in my mind... Um, a vote of uh, endorsement, you know. Well, he said something nice about the property. Yeah, that he, he he liked our yeah, property. Yeah, okay, good. He, I mean, he loved it. And he is a man who believes in the beauty of right. nature, you know, not... Um, All right, well, that's good. I didn't know that. See, that's, I can't top that story. Uh, that's a good story. Um, uh, yeah. All right, so uh, the only so the other obituary. Can I just say one more thing about yeah, David? Ben? Sure. Yeah. How he got into gardening in the beginning? Yeah. Was through his grandmother. His grandmother made him shovel a bunch of manure yeah. onto part of her garden yeah. when he was about nine years old. And that took took him. He wanted to do it. And after when that. he came back later 
and saw all the beautiful things growing out of the poop, yeah. uh, he was sold. And uh, from then on, he was in the garden. All right. All right. So the other obituary, it's not Raquel Welch. It's uh, Tim McCarver. Tim McCarver, uh, the catcher and uh, sports commentator. Uh, and um, he, uh, he was, I remember him well as a player. Uh, and he's famous being one of those players who managed to play in four different four different decades, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, As you've been telling anyone who would listen. Yeah, no one's interested at in At various that. bars. No one cares. No one cares. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was a good player. Uh, he wasn't necessarily a superstar, and he wasn't in a Hall of Fame type player. But he's a very good player, and he was also famous for catching very top pitchers. In some cases, he would become the personal catcher. And what I mean by that is this. I mean, he was the... He caught Bob Gibson during Bob Gibson's heyday for the Cardinals, but later he he went to the Phillies and he caught Steve Carlton, also a great pitcher, Hall of Fame pitcher. And 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 what I mean by personal catcher is this happens sometimes. Uh, a really star pitcher can say, "I only want to throw to that guy," and I know you don't think he belongs on the team. I just want him on the team to catch me. So he plays every fifth day. Believe it or not, that happens, uh-huh, and uh-huh, that kept him uh-huh. in the league for a year or two. And, and uh, as an announcer. You know, he was, uh, and you've seen him do broadcasts. I think you have. I, yeah, I, I highly enjoyed him as a broadcaster. Yeah, he's a broadcaster for the Mets for many years. For, for, yeah, uh, I thought I, he was accessible. He, he's accessible. He's very articulate for a sports guy, uh, especially for an ex-player. Um, some people thought he was pseudo-intellectual. I don't know if I'd go that far. I, I, anyway, I, 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 I like I never thought he was intellectual. No. I, th- I thought he he's was. He's very well-spoken. Very well spoken, but you know, um, very insightful. entertaining. Yeah. And I enjoyed him. Yeah, I highly enjoyed. And him. he had he was insightful. He would point out things you don't get. And uh, you know, it's it's funny because uh, the uh, and, and they have an example here of him doing something, calling something the World Series before it happened. It's too long a story. It's not that interesting, but. But when you, you know, the Mets have excellent announcers now. They're, they're the replacement team for McCarver, who eventually. You know, moved on uh, at a certain point after doing the Mets for a long time, and that team uh, features Keith Hernandez, mm-hmm. uh, and Keith Hernandez is in some ways similar, Ron Darling too, to uh, Tim McCarver, in that uh, they tell you things that you wouldn't, you don't appreciate about the game. They can say, "Here's something to look for. Here's the problem they have. Here's the approach they're taking here," and it's clearly highly informed by their playing diet days but they were also guys who clearly were cerebral players mm-hmm. uh they thought about things and uh i heard an interview with uh keith hernandez uh just the other day he was saying that you know he thought mccarver was a great broadcaster and in fact mccarver was broadcasting the met games when when uh, hernandez was playing and he says his father called him once his father used to call keith all the time sometimes too often and uh saying i'm listening to this broadcast this guy is unbelievable mm-hmm. uh and uh, so we really appreciated McCarver as a broadcaster. And, they, and, and the fellow doing the interview, Richard Neer, WFAN, says to Hernandez, um, well, it, it's kind of interesting that you admired him so much uh, as, as a broadcaster. You succeeded him. Isn't that something? Isn't that sort of a coincidence? And Hernandez says to him, oh, you don't know the half of it. And, and Neer says, what do you mean? He said, uh, when Tim McCarver was on the Cardinals at the end of his career, I'm the player who replaced him. 
In other words, he was cut because it was the end of his career so they could put me, the 21-year-old Keith Hernandez, on the team. <laughs> so what are the odds of that? So there you go. Um, anyway, he, he was an excellent broadcaster, and I think a lot of people patterned their broadcasting after him, and we all benefit because nothing better than listening or to or watching a Met game, and that's coming soon. Spring training. Okay. All right, so that wraps it up uh, this week. And uh, we'll see you next week. This is Dan Apuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. Yeah, see ya. <laughs> <laughs>